Hey, let's pray one more time. Lord Almighty, again we come before you because you are the God to whom we must go. You are the Christ. And God, we come to you and we ask that you would remove from us those things that would distract us from your word tonight and enable us to hear what you have to say so that we will have hope, so that we will rejoice in who you are no matter what is going on in the culture around us and so that you would give us courage to face the problems of our nation because you are indeed the sovereign king and it is all about you and not whatever the kings of the earth will say because you will turn on them and scoff because they will be as nothing. God, give us grace tonight to hear your word and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In general, when Americans think about God, one of probably two images come most readily to mind. The first is a kindly but senile, benevolent grandfather who, you know, kind of winks at our sins and we ask him for presents once in a while. The other common image of God is a brutal cosmic policeman who is always ready to punish everyone for everything. Now, lest we be dishonest here, I confess I have had both of those views of God's at various times in my life, and I repent of them. But what strikes me as interesting about the Bible is the Bible, and especially the Apostle Paul, dealt with a problem about God that most Americans could not even conceive of. Paul was deeply concerned about the question, is God unjust because he hasn't already judged every single one of us? Paul's problem is God might be a liar. Because he said that he would judge sin. And so far as I can tell, there's about 7 billion sinners running around on earth. The real problem for Paul, and he struggled with this idea of why weren't we already judged. He struggled with the answer in the, probably the most important paragraph of the Bible, Romans 3, 21 to 26. And I want to just read two verses out of there. Starting in verse 25. God the Father put forward Jesus as a propitiation, as a sacrifice that turns away wrath. God the Father put forward Jesus as a propitiation by Christ's blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show God's righteousness that he really was just, that he really did and will do what he says he will do at the present time so that God the Father might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, 
The reason why it's such a big problem that someone might have a ground to call God a liar is because God Himself makes the promise clear that He would judge people in Genesis 2, 16-17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For or because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I'm not going to go into an exposition of Genesis 2, although that would be well worth it. But the point that needs to be made is that evil will be destroyed. Those who sin must die. God will not forbear forever. Instead, God must and will punish evil in every person in a way that nevertheless does not destroy the believing sinner. I just said about two mouths full right there. Let me reread that. God must and will punish every evil in every person in a way that nevertheless does not destroy the believing sinner. In Romans chapter 3, we have Paul's answer to the problem that some unbeliever might have in calling God a liar because he has not already put to death those who have sinned. And he says, in effect, those who put their trust in the promises of God for them in Christ will find that all the punishment due them for all of their sins was already poured out on Christ on the cross. Because in the end, all evil will be dealt with on the cross by Christ or in hell. And this is why this forbearance that God exercised for thousands of years in passing over former sins is justified, is righteous, is, was the right thing to do because God's wrath would, from their perspective, will be, from our perspective, has been poured out on all sin. Namely, on Christ on the cross. Therefore, those who trust Him will not bear the wrath of God themselves. God the Father is both just. He doesn't just wink at sin. And He is the one who justifies. He declares sinners, believing sinners, righteous because all of God's wrath against those who trust His promises has been satisfied on Christ on the cross. Now, that's the gospel. That's the good news. God is not a liar. He will indeed punish all sin. And He has done that for every single person who would ever trust Him on Christ on the cross. But ironically, this, the gospel, the best news in the history of the universe, is also at the same time the most offensive teaching to the world found in the Bible. Why? Because in order for us to have an accurate understanding of the gospel, we must have an accurate understanding of the bad news. And the bad news is that every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us deserves the judgment, the wrath that God poured out on Christ. Habakkuk, Remember, we're going through his book right now. Unlike the average American, also recognized 
Paul's problem. Habakkuk asked, why are God's people, the nation of Israel, not necessarily believing Israel, why are God's people getting away with murder? Why doesn't God judge the people who are so bad so us good people can get on with doing good? That is Habakkuk's struggle. He pictures himself as one of the good people and he says, hey, God, judge those bad people so we can go about our job of doing good. Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave an answer to this. If it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And the answer is nobody apart from the grace of God. In fact, I think Solzhenitsyn evidently read Habakkuk. Habakkuk also complained to the Lord about all the evil that was around him that wasn't being judged. And fortunately for you and me, he was privileged to receive an answer from the Almighty Judge who clarifies the reality of every situation, no matter how banal or how egregious. And that clarification is judgment will come. Judgment will come. This is the first part in an argument throughout the book that we kind of uh, water skied through two weeks ago through the book of Habakkuk that exhorts you and me to overcome all our fears, all our doubts will be overcome by rejoicing in the almighty God of the universe. So since we believe that's true, let's go to Habakkuk chapter 1. And we'll see Habakkuk's first complaint. His first question is, Do you care, God? Indeed. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, Violence! And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is complaining. And he's complaining to God. And his first complaint is a question. God, are you paying attention? Don't you see what's happening? Are you indifferent to the sins of your people? Habakkuk is concerned with precisely the same thing that Paul was. Why doesn't judgment come already? Why haven't the bad people been put to death already? And as we noted last time, Habakkuk went through a tremendous societal upheaval almost to the same degree as 21st century United States. Few times in history have we seen such a radical change in the culture as today and in Habakkuk's time. And Habakkuk's solution evidently was probably something like a total victory for the religious right. 
He wanted the good guys to come into office and the bad guys to go out of office. But God has in mind something far more radical than that. Mere political victories or losses, mere losses or wins in some court in Washington, D.C. don't cause real crises in heaven. Instead, what God has in mind, and what we will get into more as we go through the book, is furthering His kingdom. And sometimes furthering God's kingdom includes, entails the ungodly winning for a short amount of time. Now, you and I must pray for and advocate for good cultural change and to some extent maybe political victories. But our hope is never in political victories or even the best cultural changes we can happen. But our hope must be in the God who is larger than cultural trends and political wins and losses. My friends, don't be discouraged by what happens in the Supreme Court or Congress. Your God still reigns. And He is sovereign. Again, we'll get back to that more as the book continues. But I want to hit one more point about these short verses. I want to encourage you to complain like Habakkuk. I want to point out kind of a a sub-point that is easily missed. I want you to notice how carefully Habakkuk composed these two complaints when he's complaining to God. And then, even in chapter 3, he gets even more specific and he gets tighter in his composition of one of the greatest psalms in literature. When you're reading Habakkuk's complaints or his questions, depending on how you look at them, you are not seeing some two-year-old throw a temper tantrum. I know what those look like. When you come across well thought out, even poetic complaints, you are forced to pay attention. And I think perhaps God pays more attention as well because the complainer has obviously spent time with God and allowing God to shape his or her thoughts to make the complaint make sense. If you're just crying out, and and sometimes that's appropriate. I'm not saying you can't just cry out to God. But when you take time to think through what is really bothering you, you look inside your own heart and you look in God's Word into God's heart, you will see deeper truths and you will be able to understand better. Examples of this kind of thought-out complaints like Habakkuk's are on display throughout the Psalms. The entirety of the book of Lamentations, which I encourage you to read and Look at the poetry of what is being expressed there. And even in Stephen Curtis Chapman's album, Beauty Will Rise, which is one of the most beautifully haunting albums ever written. It was written shortly after his daughter was killed by a tragic accident. And he puts his grief and his anguish and his frustration into songs that just penetrate your heart, but don't try to listen to that without a Kleenex. 
If you and I are, are to overcome our fears with rejoicing, like we will see Habakkuk is telling us, we would be wise to follow Chapman and Habakkuk's example by taking time to consider before we complain. To actually take time to understand our hearts and the heart of God who longs to cause you to lose your fears in joy. And when you get close to God, you will understand that judgment will indeed come. It will come. God will take care of all your complaints. All the injustices of the world will one day be set right. So Habakkuk asks in the first couple of verses, Do you care, God? And God answers, Certainly. He says, starting in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Wow. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth before themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. The first point that we take from this portion is that you and I don't always understand what God is doing. I challenge you to go back and read these verses. And you will see, again, in a very poetic, thought-through way, Habakkuk describes the people who will be God's hammer, so to speak. God's knife to cut out the cancer from his people. These are bad people. These are evil men who are in this army, who are attacking. And sometimes, God does things that we cannot even begin to understand without at least hindsight and probably not even until we get to eternity. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God cannot be comprehended. God cannot ever be put into a box. Because we can only understand, and we can only understand those things that He enables us to. Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We would be in a hopeless situation if God had not revealed Himself to us in His Word and sent His Holy Spirit so that we could understand it. But, what we understand from this portion of Scripture is simple. God is working. God is at work. He is not asleep at the wheel. And His work may not be what we expect. How could God turn cultural evil into good? Either in Habakkuk's day or in Santa Maria, California 2015. Well, 
1973, the church found itself flat-footed. The church didn't know how to respond to abortion on demand. And we were even confused about whether we should respond to abortion on demand. And we find ourselves in a similar place today with at least one exception, and that is that now the church does know how to pray for and mobilize for cultural problems, cultural evils like those that we face. But nevertheless, here we are. Homosexual marriage is the law of the land. And to some extent, we need to accept that. We need to recognize that homosexual marriage is the law of the land, just like abortion on demand is the law of the land. But accepting the law as such is not the same as going in the corner and crying about it, is it? And so, we need to do at least, at minimum, What we need to do is a much better job of loving those who need love and speaking truth wherever possible. Paul made it clear for us in Ephesians, speak truth in love. You and I need to go about in this world making a difference in individuals' lives so they know what we are for instead of what we're against. They need to know what we are for instead of what we're against. And they will only know that when we are loving them. Indeed, as Abraham Kuyper once said, he is your friend who pushes you nearer to God. Are you pushed nearer to God by the enemies of the cross? Are you pushed to your knees because you need to know what God would have from you in the face of homosexual marriage or abortion on demand or the thousand other injustices that happen in our nation? The thousands of other injustices that happen around the world. Are we allowing our hearts to be exercised by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit about those? Remember, part of the gospel that everyone needs to hear, everyone, including me, is you are loved and you are wrong about whatever social injustice or evil is happening. We, the church, ought to be for bringing about the greatest joy and health and peace for each person and as society as a whole. And judgment will come. Make sure that by God's grace you have already dealt with the problem of judgment will be coming in your own hearts. And make sure your heart is clean. Because, listen, my friends, I can trust Christ going in and cleansing the the temple with a whip. But I know my heart far too well. You put a whip in my hand and it's not going to be good for my heart. You understand what I'm saying? Make sure that when you are dealing with people who are different than you, and that comes in hundreds of flavors, make sure that you are not pretending to be the judge. Judgment is always and only the prerogative of God. 
And last time I checked, nope, I'm still not God. But Habakkuk has a problem. God, aren't you paying attention? And God says, certainly I'm paying attention. And he tells him that I'm sending the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans are these bad people. What does Habakkuk say next? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? My goodness, God, these people are awful. Yes, we're not so hot ourselves, we sin, but man, look at them. We're a lot better than they are. God forbid our hearts to say so. God forbid our hearts to say, oh, hey, well, I've got this or that monochromatic sin, but look at that technicolor sin that that person over there is doing. Hear a prayer like that earlier this morning, did you? Because I am quick to judge, and I am the one who needs to repent. And you get to the middle of chapter 1 in Habakkuk and he describes the tool that God will use to punish the evil of Judah. Judah. And it's the Chaldean dynasty of Babylon. And these guys are bad. And Habakkuk will describe how shocked, how stunned, or use his words, astounded that God would use such evil people. And we should be shocked. We should be appalled. We should, for a moment, be stunned into silence as we see the evil around us. Until we have plumbed the depths of our heart and God's words so that we can creatively word a complaint and come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I don't have all my ducks in a row and I need you to show me what you're doing. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. I think Habakkuk said it like that. I need your grace right now, God. I need you. Lord, I'm scared. We, but Lord, you are good. We shall not die. Die. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. That must have been so painful for Habakkuk to write. Oh my goodness. That, that must have hurt his fingers to write it. It must have hurt his mouth to say it for the first time. And you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. 
Habakkuk first recognizes that God will send the Chaldeans as a reproof. Indeed, chastisement for his own people's sin. Judgment will come. And he is confident. He's confident. God, you, we will not die. You have ordained them for judgment. He's going back on his theology, his understanding of who God is. His confidence is in the unchangeable love that God has for those who trust his promises for them in Christ. He knows that judgment is coming. It might hurt. But he knows that through this pain, he will be in God's presence. Furthermore, Habakkuk puts his thinking cap on as he reflects on who God is. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God will not wink at sin. There is no final pushing under the rug. Judgment will come. It will be judgment on the cross or it will be judgment in hell. And please, please go home and reread Habakkuk chapter 1 ten times because there's so much in here that I can't get at. And your soul, I promise, will be richer because it's God's Word. But I want to take time to make the profound point that is introduced in 10 and 11. These are the Chaldeans, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. The judgment is that these are in fact guilty men who, who make their own strength, their own war machine, their God. And we can learn at least two things. One is that God can use anyone even when their heart is not right with God and this is proven by a passage in Philippians Paul says some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill the latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely but thinking to inflict me of in my imprisonment what then so what if their motives are bad? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You know what? Just side note here for a second. There's lots of churches in Santa Maria, California. You know what? And they come in different flavors. And there are some flavors of Bible-believing and Christ-honoring churches that, you know, frankly, I wouldn't fit in. They wouldn't appreciate me and I wouldn't appreciate them. But you know what? Paul says, what? As long as they're preaching God's word, as long as they're preaching the grace, salvation by grace through faith, okay. And here we learn that you and I can overcome our fear by rejoicing because even in my smallness, even in my sinfulness, my helplessness, because God is strong, even when you are weak, then you will be strong because that is when you will allow God to work in you and through you. And in His strength, you can rejoice. You can overcome your fear by rejoicing because even in the midst of evil, rulers doing, evil rulers doing evil things, God can bring about their wrath for His glory. And... God's keeping score. 
God knows what's happening. God will take care of their sinful hearts later because right now he's dealing with his own people. This is in fact exactly what God says in Isaiah chapter 10. Listen to this. He says, When the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, in other words, when all that the Assyrians want to do is done, judgment has finally come, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart by the, of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For the king of Assyria says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of peoples and plundered their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And so and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. That's what the king of Assyria said. What is it that God says in response? Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? You're using an axe to chop down a tree. Is it the axe or is it the chopper that's chopping down the tree? You lay an axe on the floor, on the ground next to the tree. Is the tree going to fall? No. It's the person using the axe. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not woods. The Assyrians are being judged, will be judged, according to Isaiah 10, not because God used them as a tool to punish wicked Israel. God punished Assyria because they did God's work with a heart focused on themselves. I, I, I. When God indeed enabled them to do what he wanted them to do, but their heart was not right. Even those ordained by God to take God's people to the woodshed will also be judged because they did not have a right heart. My friends, you don't need to be afraid of all the court cases of all the congressmen's congresses and all the parliaments and all the presidents and prime ministers of the world because God knows what's happening. And there are times in his kingdom coming and his kingdom is coming when the evil will apparently be winning. When the evil will apparently achieve victories that we just sit there and are stunned. God, aren't you paying attention? And he says, certainly. And as we get to the end of Habakkuk chapter 1, we find something even more important. We see that Habakkuk's complaint that he did in, in verses 1-4 through four, has already begun to be transformed to what it will be in the end. A fear-killing celebration of trust in God fueled by joy in the Lord. Because we will overcome our fears by rejoicing. And what do we see? Habakkuk says, I will listen. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. We are going to come back to this later. But I want you to note Habakkuk's, what I'm calling his expectant 
submission. Habakkuk did not acquiesce, nor did he fight kicking and screaming. There's no cynicism here. There is simply a heart that intentionally waits for God to do what he knows God must and will do no matter the cost. And this is an example of what we're going to see even more as the book goes on, that we, like Habakkuk, can overcome our fears by rejoicing. And I want to tell you one excellent example of a man who did precisely this. Abraham Kuyper chose what we described as last time as the Daniel option to living in a world but not being of the world. One who is going out there into the world and and being a part of the salt and light as opposed to retreating and going and being a monk who ignores the world. Kuyper himself was a scholar. He was a pastor for a time. He was a journalist and eventually became the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. And Kuyper was willing to put his money where his mouth was, so to speak, when it came to living in a way that rejoiced in God. And he refused to allow fear to push him down or jealousy to separate him from his brothers and sisters in the Netherlands. He refused to build walls to surround the flimsy kingdoms that we are so apt to build. One of his admirers wrote, Kuiper believed that matters of great public moment required true Christians to set aside their differences and rallying together around their love for Christ. What are we going to rally around? Our love for Christ and the authority of his word to unite in political struggle to advance the kingdom agenda. Now, as I said two weeks ago, and as we have said at Grace for a long time, politics is not what saved Habakkuk and is not what's going to save us either. But if you are going to choose the Daniel option, if you are going to choose to be in the culture and be salt and light, you are going to necessarily be interacting with those who need to hear the truth in love. You are going to be involved in politics in that sense. And I want you to hear what Kuiper has to say about this. He says, When principles that run against your deepest conviction begin to win the day, okay, stop there, understand that. What is he talking about? Are there any principles that run against your deepest conviction that are winning the day right now in the United States? Okay. If that's true... Kuiper is saying, then battle is your calling and peace becomes a sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before your friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. Now let me explain Kuiper just a little bit. When he's talking about this fire of your faith, he's not just trying to be poetic. This is kind of a technical term for Kuiper. And he's not talking about going and putting up your dukes. He's talking about being passionate about the gospel. He's talking about being passionate about letting all those near ones near you to hear your passion for the great God who is far greater than any political party anywhere, anywhen. 
Again, Kuiper's admirer T.M. Moore says, a self-consciously biblical approach to culture is required. One that looks to God, speaking in the Word of God, to guide us in thinking about how best to put culture to use for our benefit and His glory. Now this includes primarily speaking the Word of God, but in speaking we must have an audience. Therefore, we must go forward and Christ has already promised that the gates of hell would not stop us. Christian, don't give up. Christian, don't back down. Christian, speak the truth in love in the very best way possible using all the gifts that God has given you now. Now is your opportunity. Be creative, even as Habakkuk was very creative in expressing the truth. And get educated. Learn God's Word and learn from others who have walked ahead of us. I put two websites in the back of your notes if you want some advice on how to answer some very difficult cultural questions. Go to these websites. Because we know beyond doubting that justice will prevail. We can take courageous risks for the Almighty God who has taught us to overcome our fears by rejoicing in Him. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, we do once again come before You because the task before us is far more than we can bear. And Lord, we know that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that You will enable us, Jesus, to bring glory to You by speaking the truth and love and by choosing to be out in the world being salt and light, glorifying Your name. Bless us, Jesus, so that we may be a blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen.